Section 33 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Criminal Investigation, A Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 1, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. The Expert and How to Make Use of Him, Continued. Section 4. The Chemical Analyst. Here we may be brief. In effect, the chemist will be employed in all cases in which the microscopist may be called in. In many cases, both are necessary, for there are few cases of a purely chemical category. The analyst has frequent recourse to the magnifying glass or microscope before or after his chemical work for the purpose of completing or checking it. Conversely, the microscopist can hardly do analyst's work, and so we can only attain satisfactory results from the combined action of the microscopist and chemical analyst. Speaking generally, we may say that the investigating officer does not employ the analyst or chemical examiner frequently enough, and that many cases which have remained in a state of obscurity would have taken another turn if the expert had been consulted. This is especially true in all cases of poisoning, where recourse to a chemist is only had where pieces of arsenic as big as a pea, or a strong odor of phosphorus, opium, or other substances which exclude all doubt, are found in the stomach. Yet we feel we cannot be reproached with looking at the dark side of things when we assert that the chemical examiner should be resorted to in every case of sudden death which the inquest has not completely explained, or even in the case of a long illness which, without natural reasons, has ended in death, and this especially if any possibility of a criminal prosecution arises. When one skims through a work on medical jurisprudence, and notes the numerous substances which, in relatively small doses, are capable of causing a man's death, when one remembers the uncertainty of the signs of poisoning as revealed by the history of the patient's illness and the death certificate, and when, finally, one thinks of the modern extensive diffusion of superficial chemical knowledge, and the facility with which nearly all chemical products, even the most dangerous, are procurable, one is astonished that many cases of poisoning even more difficult to discover do not occur. The investigating officer ought therefore always to pay attention to the possibilities in these cases, and considerations of money and trouble should not be allowed to enter into the question. Nor should the other side of the matter be lost sight of. Often death remains unexplained, and is believed to indicate a crime, whereby suspicion may rest for long years upon the innocent. It is the duty of the investigating officer to prevent the happening of such a state of things, just as much as it is his duty to bring about the conviction of the guilty. We are aware of a large number of substances, not venomous by nature, which, when they become tainted, are harmful or deadly. They may be absorbed through imprudence or without any one being to blame, so it is allowable to presume that these substances have caused inexplicable and suspicious deaths. But the chemist, if consulted, would clear up the matter. 
Take, for example, poisoning by coal gas, trichinous or tainted meat, poison developed in sausages or cheese, poisoned shellfish, oysters, lobsters, tainted fish, wine, beer, vinegar, or other articles of everyday use, in fact, the whole range of ptomaine poisons, finally, the frequent cases of poisoning through culinary utensils. The ptomaine alkaloids, for example, colodyne, lead to the most serious mistakes. They may arise entirely through the decomposition of the dead body, are often highly poisonous, and in many cases bear a great resemblance to the plant alkaloids. Their behavior under physiological tests may also lead to confusion. For full details, the reader will refer to such standard works as Lauder Brunton's Materia Medica and Blythe on Poisons. A useful working summary will be found in Legal Medicine by Major Collis Berry, IMS, Volume 1, Chapter 43. Equally important in this connection is poisoning by carbon monoxide fumes. Bruardel, de Coste, Ogier, and Hoffman relate a case in which a man was killed through gas fumes in a lime kiln. His wife, though innocent, was condemned as a murderess and remained in prison for some years. In short, every suspicious death requires minute investigation by the investigating officer. It is not sufficient merely to ask the analyst whether there be poison in such and such a stomach, without giving him any indication of the direction his researches should take. If he has no starting point, his examination becomes difficult and costly. But, if he knows all that the investigating officer has been able to learn in his inquiry, he will easily, quickly, and surely complete his share of the work. If we wish to know what the investigating officer can demand of the chemist, we should say, the investigating officer ought not to have too many scruples in this connection, especially as regards the question of time. We know that after a long space of time, the existence of certain poisons, particularly arsenic, is ascertained. Footnote. Proulx relates that once on the deal boards of a floor, upon which a person poisoned by arsenic had spit, arsenic was still found, although the floor had been scrubbed forty times. Phosphorus has been discovered six weeks after death. And, footnote. and the interval during which organic poisons may be discovered after their absorption is never so short as is commonly believed. Sonneschein and Clausen found that traces of morphia in the intestines could be discovered after eighteen months, although the corpse had been buried in circumstances favoring decomposition. It is not, therefore, for the investigating officer to decide whether too much time has elapsed since the death of the victim. Let him leave the solution of this question to conscientious and experienced experts. Moreover, the investigating officer ought not to fear, in certain circumstances, to raise the question of whether the poison has not been introduced into the body otherwise than by the mouth, but has been given perhaps in quite another manner, for example, through a wound either already existing or made on purpose. It is related, it is true, in a novel, that in a certain German military hospital, 1871, a jealous woman, who was acting as a nurse, took from the wound of a soldier on the point of death a composition of blood and pus, 
which she introduced into the wound of another soldier who was slightly wounded, with the object of bringing about his death. As we have stated, it is simply a story from a novel, but the thing is quite possible. Just as possible, and indeed very frequent, are cases of death caused by the prick of a poisoned needle. These wounds are made in passing, and no one pays attention to them, owing to their apparent insignificance. Such are some of the difficult questions an analyst may be asked. Besides in inquiries relating to the death of a man, the investigating officer will also have recourse to the analyst in all those cases which belong specifically to the sphere of the microscopist. The investigating officer will himself get to know by practice which of the two will be capable of solving a particular question, but if he does not know, no great harm will be done, for the specialist he asks will soon tell him that the work is the business of his colleagues. Section 5. The Expert in Physics If the medical jurisprudent cannot enlighten us, if the microscopist and chemical analyst are incapable of elucidating the matter, recourse must be had to the expert in physics. The cases in which one can and ought to approach him are legion. No one would be able to completely enumerate them. Each day brings new ones, and every zealous investigating officer, desirous of developing his knowledge, will increase them yet more. Here we will again repeat an observation already made. In order that the physicist may lend his aid to the investigating officer, the latter must ask him for it. The investigating officer it is who must go to the physicist to ask if he can help him in a given case. It is not for the physicist to come and offer his services to the investigating officer. The expert in physics studies, experiments, discovers, and publishes, it is for the investigating officer to read, weigh, and question. The investigating officer ought then to recall his former knowledge, generally at once forgotten, which has accompanied him from college into practical life. He should try to complete it, and keep it in touch with modern science, by reading at least the reviews which always teach the reader something about the new results in various natural sciences and the services rendered by them and also, as it is his duty to inquire of everything he sees and hears, how it may be utilized in his profession, and he can utilize all science, so he ought never, in reading these reviews, to forget to ask what advantage may be gained from what he has just read. He must attempt to imagine practical cases in which he could call in the expert in physics to utilize the new results of the science. In real cases, when they arise, he will certainly remember his meditations and call in the physicist. Indeed, we require that the physicist, as well as all other experts, should interest himself in his business. When he has been often questioned, and knows approximately what the investigating officer requires, he ought to make inquiries on his own initiative, and draw the attention of the investigating officer to the information which he is able to furnish, and of which the investigating officer is ignorant. In the following pages we shall enumerate a few cases in which the physicist can second the investigating officer, confining ourselves to general indications, and contenting ourselves with citing some examples, 
we simply wish to demonstrate that the physicist in many cases is really capable of giving us information and enlightenment footnote the authors would be very happy to receive communications regarding cases in which the investigating officer has been aided by experts in natural philosophy End note. speaking generally it may be stated the physicist must always be called in when it is important to determine the effect of the natural forces which have exercised any influence upon a matter within the purview of the penal code it goes without saying that every man is capable of determining this effect but the scientist can better observe it and with more accuracy and justice especially in cases requiring special knowledge such as those involving calculations and the use of scientific appliances let us presume for example that the fact of an article having been thrown has become of some importance in a criminal case a stone has been hurled against a window wall or upon a roof the questions now are to establish the spot where the person who threw it was standing the force with which he threw it the size and weight of the stone the direction in which it ricocheted the time at which the event took place and many other similar questions true it is that any one can draw such conclusions and make such observations any one that is to say who has two good eyes at his disposal and who has not forgotten what he has at other times learned concerning ballistics or the science of calculating the force with which things are projected but with what accuracy and correctness will not a man do this who all his life has been occupied with the study of these questions and who comes armed with all the special knowledge required for such a case where an outsider sees nothing useful the specialist perhaps observes all that is necessary to clear up the case the same may be said of a large series of optical questions when for example it is desired to know how a light effect has been produced what has been its action what amount of light has been necessary for the perpetration of determinate acts how a certain shadow has been produced how far it has stretched what object has caused it at what moment of the day the sun has produced such and such an effect or at what hour in the night the moon has shone in a particular manner and a thousand other questions in a recent case in the Cudapa district a man who was attacked in the night was said to have been lying on his left side on a cot facing the northern and open side of a shavadi or shed the foot of his cot being a few feet from its eastern wall it was alleged the stabbing took place about midnight and just as soon as the moon was rising the injured man stating in the witness box that he was lying awake and quote, watching the moon rise End quote, when his assailants came up and attacked him, and therefore he recognized them. No one in court was able positively to say whether at that time of the year he could possibly have seen the moon, which, if his story was true, must have been a very northerly one. Had this witness's story not been completely broken down and found to be false in other directions, it is probable that he would have been believed when he asserted that he saw the moon rising it would have been impossible to have adjourned the case which was a sessions one to a date upon which the moon would have been in an equivalent position and it is very doubtful whether any physicist could have been summoned for that trial
but had the investigating officer taken the precaution of verifying beforehand the man's story by communicating with an expert in natural philosophy, there would have been no such difficulty as was raised in this trial upon this point. Other information relating to the sun may also be of great importance. Whether, for example, the sun has been able to give a certain amount of heat, and at what moment of the day, and what accessory circumstances must be taken into account, whether the rays of the sun can have fallen at a particular hour of the day upon a glass of water so as to make a sort of burning glass, whether the heat of the sun can have changed the shape of certain objects, for example, by shriveling them up, breaking them, causing them to split or expand. Other questions concerning the effect of light are, how long a piece of cloth must have been exposed to the heat of the sun in order to fade to a certain degree, how long it would take for a piece of paper, especially the modern kinds of paper which are full of ligneous material, to become yellow or brown with exposure to the sun's rays, or how long an object must have remained in the daylight to have undergone a certain transformation, etc. As regards drafts, the wind, and storms, very important questions may arise, whether, for example, during a fire, it is the wind or a draft caused by the heat which has carried a piece of burning straw or a wooden tile, shingle. What direction of the wind may be deduced from such or such circumstances, whether a particular object has been able to resist the hurricane, that is to say, in attempting to fix the time of its having been placed in position, was it in existence before the tempest, the time of which is known? Questions concerning rain and snow are at times more important still. What has been produced by their agency, from what direction they have come, how often it has rained upon a certain article, etc. In this connection also we have the effects of frost, which are of a determinate character and may lend force to certain suppositions. It may be asked whether a particular object has been acted upon by frost, and with what force and how often. Also, what other atmospheric phenomena have acted upon the body in question, and what has been the duration of the action. To this category also belong the following questions. A stolen object has been hidden and discovered. Has it been buried? And if so, wrapped up or not? And for how long? What was the nature of the soil? Were there other articles with it? The manner of their preservation, especially when not in the air, sometimes alters them, and these alterations are especially noticeable in objects of delicate color and structure, so that the physicist may often draw conclusions of great importance. There is yet another and well-known branch of the physicist's business, namely cases concerning the effect and properties of water. Has an article been in the water, and if so, for what length of time? Has it been carried along by running water, or sunk to the bottom? If the latter, what is the nature of the bottom? How far has the article been carried by the water, and what was the nature of the current? How long must it have taken a body of given weight, shape, and size, to traverse a given distance? When the banks are irregular, and covered with vegetation, it may be necessary to make detailed and accurate trials and experiments. Other questions are, 
the effect of water upon banks or flooded places, and the length of time such places have been covered. Investigations concerning corpses found in the water are particularly important. It is necessary, for example, to establish the successive conditions of the corpse in the water, where it has gone, whence it has come, what obstacles and currents it has traversed, etc. All such questions are within the sphere not of the medical man, but of the physicist. See chapter 16, section 5, Bodily Injuries. To this domain also belong inquiries regarding the effect of artificial heat, apart from actual burns on the body, when it is desired, for example, to establish the length of time an object has been exposed to a more or less severe heat, and the kind of heat, that is, whether produced by a particular stove, as by an ordinary cooking stove, or a special furnace. Other examinations should also be enumerated bearing on breakages, tears, splits, or scratches on all sorts of articles, when desirous of knowing their direction, as also the time and manner of their production, whether, for example, naturally or artificially. This information is often of the greatest importance, and can only be obtained where the observer is intelligent, knows the exact nature of the damaged article, and how to appreciate the value of other phenomena accompanying the deterioration, such as direction, force, time, etc. This is heavy work, especially in giving advice on a case of negligence and the damage resulting therefrom, railway accidents, explosions, fall of buildings, landslips, etc. In such cases, minute examination of secondary details, for example a split screw, intricate calculations, and a penetrating eye are alone capable of elucidating the truth. Let us finally take a passing glance at those two great motive forces of our times, magnetism and electricity. The least service magnetism renders us is the discovery of iron in cases where a chemical examination is not possible for some reason or other. As for electricity, we do not yet know all the services it can render, and how far it will go, or exactly what results the electrician will some day be able to afford us in criminal matters. Speaking generally, the investigating officer ought not to forget that in many ways his work resembles that of the physicist, especially when he has to draw conclusions from the effects he finds upon articles. In dealing with such effects, he must determine the forces producing them, just as the physicist explains the phenomena of nature. If then the investigating officer questions a physicist in a general way, the latter, finding himself in his own domain, will perhaps not confine himself to the questions asked, but in his turn will raise further questions which the investigating officer has overlooked. In forgeries also, as to ink, paper, writing materials, files of documents, etc., the physicist can afford the chemist and the microscopist important help obtainable in no other direction. End of section 33